Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 38. In today's episode, we learn from Farah Qureshi about designing and making jewelry in precious materials using ethical silver and gold. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step by step. I'm Philip Vlitsa, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked to Ruth Stone of Boxhead Craft. Boxhead Craft is the world's only manufacturer of blank boxheads for kids to design and decorate. So make sure to check out episode 37 to look at what it takes to launch a product inspired by the popular computer game Minecraft. I also wanted to thank everyone that sends in feedback on the show. Feel free to shoot me an email at philip at theproductstartup.com or by going to theproductstartup.com and clicking contact me. So let's get started with today's episode. Hi, Farah. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, You're welcome. It's great to have the opportunity to... Um, talk to you and to explain the work that I do. You get your inspiration from botanical imagery and organic shapes, and you also design your jewelry using ethical silver and gold. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? When I start the design process, I research ideas that I have a great interest in. So botany and the natural world has great appeal because of the shapes and the forms and the structures. Uh, So it's very inspiring uh, for creating shapes for the jewellery that I make. And I'm also inspired by travelling abroad, going to different places, visiting different cultures. Uh, Other subjects such as found objects and going to museums So there's quite a broad spectrum with the ideas behind the jewellery that I create. Um, And then the next phase would be to collate ideas based on the research and then to develop the designs, which are then made into ethical gold and silver. And the ethical stance comes from um, my using recycled materials I'm very much into being a green business and I specifically look to buy recycled gold and silver. And also I've recently become a fair trade gold licensee so I can now use the fair trade gold hallmark and whenever I use this particular gold, um, it means that the people from the mines and the communities around them will will benefit greatly from jewellers purchasing the fair trade materials. You mentioned that you travel a lot to get some inspiration. Before the interview, we talked a little bit about that you're on a short list to receive an award. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of an opportunity that would create for you? Sure. So I've been shortlisted for an award that's called the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Award. And if people are successful, they're able to do a fellowship internationally uh, relating to their industry or the work that they do. 
So if I am successful, it would give me the opportunity to go to different countries to research a jewellery technique that I have a great interest in and then I would be able to bring back the information and relay that to the UK and I would also be able to integrate what I have learnt into the jewellery that I make. Uh, hopefully incorporating the technique in new and fresh ways that are very contemporary as well. So it would be very exciting. It would give you a chance to learn something new and bring something refreshing, hopefully, to your industry and business, as well as feed some of that curiosity that you've got deep down. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your motivation was for creating your business. I think a lot of people will pursue money or uh, some sort of a lifestyle with their business, but I think some of the strongest motivators can be a deep core motivation that goes beyond that, some want to make the world a better place. Can you talk about your motivation for doing that? Sure. So my motivation for developing a jewellery business comes from my love of art and design and craft. And I started to make jewellery as a teenager uh, when I took part in a jewellery making course for a week. And since then, I've developed a huge interest in the subject. So I'm developing a business that I love and that I enjoy greatly and that I find very rewarding. And also, I want to develop a business that's green. And eventually, I want to be able to employ people um, and to help them with their careers as well. So I like to look at the business that I'm creating in quite a holistic way, which fundamentally I find quite enjoyable. That gives me the inspiration to continue and the determination as well. You mentioned having employees. Do you have employees now? At the moment, I work for myself, so I'm self-employed. And then I get a lot of help with the making of the jewellery with particular techniques. So there are very specialised stone setters in London in an area called Hatton Garden, which is the jewellery quarter. And they will do techniques such as micro pavé setting, which involves using microscopes. I also use casters and laser cutters and platers. So I do um, get the help um, from, from the experts with the creation of my collection. Yeah, I like that you mentioned all that because I think people have this presumption that they have to do everything on their own. But in this case, you're the project manager and just making sure that it's executed to your vision. Can you talk a little bit about your design process, how you come up with a new design? Sure. So I'm currently um, extending a collection, and the collection is inspired by microscopic algae, which under the microscope um, looks very beautiful. And so I started by doing some drawings, 
creating a couple of pieces with colourful gemstones and gold. I'm now extending the collection further, so I'm developing new pieces, earrings, necklaces, rings. So it will be a complete collection. So often I will start by creating one or two pieces, which then extends out. I love to work with different ideas, so... Um, Yep, I'm constantly making different pieces, which will then become collections later. That makes me ask the question, how do you test your ideas and make sure that they're going to be selling? Because if you're coming up with something new that you find interesting, how do you know that other people will find it worthy to add to their own personal collections at home? That's a really interesting question. I think it's fascinating, actually. I think that subconsciously designers tap into what is current, not necessarily highly fashionable. However, designers can tap into what will become a trend. And often a design can be quite relevant and current and hopefully something that customers will see as being relevant and that will go with what they're wearing and the style that they have. I guess in a way you're hopefully looking to inspire them a bit. Have you noticed that you push your customers out of their comfort zone sometimes, but they end up liking the result? Um, That's another very, very interesting question. Hopefully... Um, they will be taken out of their comfort zone to try something a little bit different and to buy something that isn't just run-of-the-mill, um, highly commercial. So, yes, that's great when customers do, and then they have the opportunity to wear a piece of jewellery for a long time. When you first got started, what was it like trying to get maybe some of your first customers? Did you feel that you were starting to sell to friends and family and that kind of expanded? Or was it a little bit more a tactical where you you know, you know put up a website and you started to market directly to a certain audience? Um, I think in the beginning, I did used to sell to family and friends, actually. And then it's expanded from there. Um. So I would say that my friends and acquaintances were very supportive in the beginning and family members as well. And then it's just broadened out from there. Yeah, and you just built on the existing audience. And I assume that you look at some of the common characteristics between the people that buy and kind of extrapolate that out into thinking, okay, this is who I think that my buyer is. Yes, I think actually from taking part in events and pop-up shows and craft exhibitions. Um, the jewellery that I make reaches a much broader audience. And I think from there, I've gauged an idea of the kind of customer that's interested in my work. They can be similar to the friends and acquaintances that started to buy my work from the beginning, 
and they can often be very different as well. So it's very interesting. And then I sell my work through shops, so I don't get to, to meet the customers. So yes, that's a different customer base again. Again, it's a very interesting question. And that's a good point about meeting people face-to-face. I think people fail to do that nowadays because it's so easy to go online and put up a website and create some profiles on social media and start posting articles and photos and pictures. And, and But that lacks some of that face-to-face interaction, and you definitely don't get the qualitative feedback that you would if you were meeting them at a pop-up. What would be your advice to someone that's basically at that stage? Actually, I'll take that back. What is the right stage where you should be considering going to some of these events in person? And how would you go about doing it for the first time? I think if I were just starting, I would do a inexpensive event to begin with and would take a cohesive collection along and hopefully that the event would be marketed well so it would be well attended and then it would be good to do the event as a marketing exercise to to hear the feedback and to start to build up a mailing list as well also the online um, way of selling work is also very very good I think it's also fantastic to take up the opportunities of selling directly as well. Go both tracks and see which one is giving you some feedback and uh, giving you some sales and hopefully put some more of your effort and, and time into growing that part of the business. What would you say is a good place to start looking for these types of events or would you hold your own event that you have to market yourself? I think both ways can be very, very good. So in London, there are many different ways of selling and there are some very good organizations that designers can join where those organizations organize events that designers can apply to and they can be very inexpensive to do. Sometimes the organizations have their own small galleries and pop-up shops that designers can hire at reasonable rates for one week or two weeks. And then there are the bigger fairs that require some investment. And then those big events do a lot of PR and a lot of marketing for the designers. So usually they get a good audience coming along to the event and sometimes those events can be very successful. They are great for building up mailing lists for the designers and then the designers get extremely good feedback for their work as well. And another route would be that designers could do their own pop-up There are many venues in London that designers can hire at quite reasonable rates. They could collaborate with other designers or they could do standalone events. And then they could market the events through social media, through their blogs, 
through their mailing list newsletter or hope that customers will come in off the street. They can give out flyers to local cafes, bars, other types of shops as well. And if those events are at a prime time like Christmas or Valentine's Day, or if the pop-up is in a place that attracts tourists, so designers could do a pop-up at the height of the tourist season, and then that could attract uh, some passing trade, and those events can be quite successful as well. So there are many different routes, as well as selling through big websites, such as Amazon and other companies as well. Yes, definitely sounds like a lot of avenues to go down. Uh, when you're just starting out, it might seem a little bit overwhelming to decide you know, what direction to take and how much time you should spend on working on your designs and products versus marketing and selling them. Um, have you found the ideal balance there between the two sides of the of the business? I think when I started, I used to spend a lot of time with the designs and producing the collections and the actual making. And then I discovered that it's really important to do the marketing as well. So it's quite hard to strike the balance. And I think it's really important to do the marketing. However, that can take over as well. So it's sort of really creating a schedule whereby um, I can create the jewellery and new designs and also find time to do the marketing and the selling as well. So it's a continual process of finding the right balance to do all the things that are involved with starting a business. Yeah, I could definitely imagine, especially when you're just starting out. Can you talk a little bit about your design process? And after you create your designs, how do you communicate those to the people that you know, produce the work for you? Well, I actually create the designs and then I do the prototypes. And from there, I can create a master pattern that's sent to a casting company the casting company can produce multiples of that master pattern. Often I will take the multiples that have been produced and then I will create the pieces of jewellery and if they have stones to be set, then they would be sent off to a stone setter or they would be plated. So even though I delegate work, I also will do part of the making as well. So it's a case of actually um, producing the designs, finding which technique will be most suited to those designs, and then sending those out to a company to help with the next step. And then I will put those designs together to then send to a stone setter or for another process 
Right. That way you can control all the steps and you also get some of that feedback on the quality. So if you see that one of the vendors isn't producing something to your spec, you can kind of send it back or ask them to rework it. Have you had any negative experiences with vendors? And I don't want you to name anybody by name, but is there any learning experiences that you can share about working with third parties? Yes, absolutely. So it's trial and error as to finding the right companies to work with. Um, I have some very good casting companies that I work with and they're excellent and the laser cutters that I work with as well are fantastic and the stone setters. Um, a long time ago, I had one experience with a stone setting company and that's just part of the process. Um, it then encouraged me to find stone setters that I work with who are fantastic. Um, I would say that the only technique that I possibly would have an issue with, with would be plating. I have a company who does the work very well and works to a good standard. However, occasionally, if I've been to a company who is inundated with work and they maybe have too much to do, sometimes the quality can not be as good as they are capable of doing. And then I will just be quite straightforward with them and give them my constructive feedback and hopefully they would take that on board. Uh, there are always other companies to go to. If something doesn't go right, there are always very good companies to work with. So even though I've had a couple of experiences that haven't been completely positive, I think that I've found people that I can work with who do work to a great standard. It sounds like a really good experience that you've had. I've had my own nightmare experiences, I suppose. It's hard yeah. to get out of a contract sometimes or start using different companies if they're in the middle of producing something for you and you know they, sure. they have some of your stock. I think those relationships and cultivating those is certainly very important. Have you found a lot of these vendors and contractors through some of these meetups and events or do you just seek them out and visit them individually? That's a very good question. Uh, often I've sought them out. Sometimes people have come through recommendation, which is always really good. And I've now built up a good list of people that I can work with. Sometimes the contacts have come through initiatives. So in the past in London, there have been some initiatives for jewellery designers, which have been uh, funded by the government. And they have been a great help with actually directing designers to particular companies that can help them with the design process. And over time, I've been able to build the list. Sometimes when I've done a trade event, the 
companies will actually go around to, to visit the designers to tell them about the work they do. And so I get to meet the companies occasionally through these type of events face-to-face. So I get an idea of what they're like and then just take a chance sometimes to see how it goes. And more often than not, it works out quite well. Yeah, so the takeaway there is to start small maybe and work on a smaller project and see how they perform and then give them more work if they you feel that they can handle it. Absolutely. I think that it's always good to try and if they're just helping with maybe one or two pieces, you get an idea of how they work and the standard that they work to. And then it doesn't really cost very much to do that, to get one or two samples. Right. And especially with your line of work with jewelry, I think you're working in generally in low quantities and high unit cost per item. So uh, compared to most of the products that we have on the show, actually, in a way, you have this benefit that there's some more margin per item to kind of work with uh, versus maybe the traditional product that might be mass produced. Margins are very slim. So any kind of mistake gets amplified across the entire line. Yes. What would you say that the disadvantages are in working with jewelry? A disadvantage could be that if a designer produces a lot of stock, then that can be quite hard because then the financial side of the business is tied up in the jewellery. So I think it's probably best when producing a collection to start slowly with gauging how people see the work, how they like it, um, which pieces they're going to buy, the most popular pieces, and then to go from there rather than building up lots of stock initially and then hoping that it will all sell. So I think I've learned over time just be slightly more cautious and to gauge a reaction rather than just sort of leaping in and producing lots of multiples because sometimes it can take some time to sell um, a high quantity of stock. Like you said, it depends on how well that product is received in the market and there's really no way to gauge some of that until people will take out their wallets because... People will tell you that something is interesting, but until you make that sale, it's all just lip service, so to speak. Have you found ways of kind of cutting through some of that noise to see if something will sell before you invest too much into the manufacturing of it? I think when I've sold online, if it's on a a big website, that can be quite a good way of marketing the work and then seeing which pieces are the most popular as well. And people can be quite immediate when they purchase online. So that's been quite interesting. It really varies, actually. I I think you're right. And also, it depends on which time of the year that they're purchasing. So around Christmas time, people may have a particular budget. Mm -hmm. So things up to a certain price point will sell. And then above that, maybe it would sell at a different type of at a different time of year. I think it's a case of trying different ways of selling. So when you first started selling and you started selling in pop-up shops and then you slowly expanded online, did you find any challenges along the way in terms of scaling the business? Did one part grow faster than you could keep up with? 
Um, at the moment, I'm scaling up. So I think I've yet to to reach that stage where I'm going to feel overwhelmed. So I think I'm in a fortunate position, actually. I can sort of still try different things and different ways of selling and gauge when I need to take on staff and to just progress with the business. So I... I have only felt overwhelmed when I've had a big order and I've had a deadline with that order and I've had to produce quite a few pieces quite quickly. And I think if the opportunity happens again, then I will delegate and get help with the making of those big orders. Yeah, it sounds like you had some late nights then. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's what it takes a lot of times to succeed. And I personally like that connection to the product and the service and and even taking on some of those big orders because it helps you kind of understand some of the implications of uh, taking on the work and carrying it through and what steps in the process can be rushed. And then when you speak to some of these vendors, you have these educated questions in the back of your mind to say, well, how are they going to do this if I really struggled with it? As you're growing through your business now and you're starting to, like you said, to spend more time in sales and marketing, what have you found to be a good use of your time when marketing both online and in person? So when you say in person, would that be my sort of um, marketing to magazines myself or marketing through social media or marketing by creating leaflets? Your marketing strategy online with social media and magazines and things like that is one thing that can scale. But then when you start to do things in person, like attend those pop-up events and other shows, you can't really be doing too many other things at the same time. And so some of those events are hard sure. to scale um, and they may cost uh, even money to pay for booth fees and things like that. What is your most effective use of your time and money when it comes to marketing or do you find an even blend to be the answer? I think that it's good to do the marketing in a variety of different ways. So I think it's good to do the PR to the magazines which are printed and which are online. It's also good to do the social media such as Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, perhaps not all of those, perhaps maybe choosing one or two and to do those in a more in-depth way. And then if I do a pop-up event, I think it's good to uh, create some leaflets and flyers to distribute. So I would say a mix, although I think in time I may narrow down the marketing when I see which areas are more successful than others. Um, I also do newsletters as well. So I try to cover quite a broad spectrum at the moment. When people do see bigger events, hopefully most of that marketing is taken on by the organizers and then the PR as well. So hopefully that frees up the designer's time to perhaps sit down and produce 
particular pieces of work for those shows. I think there's more pressure when designers are doing a standalone pop-up or if they're collaborating with others because then the marketing is a much bigger uh, project and it involves uh, thinking about how the marketing is going to be done and what I found is that I tend to do that over time so that it's sort of done in sections over two or three months and then I I think that that helps actually with then fitting in the designing and the making so if it's organized it's it's easier actually yeah I can imagine that can get challenging especially if you're changing your marketing to be specific to that event yeah absolutely directly to a specific audience yes yes so everything has to be sort of individually tailored actually I think possibly a good way forward would be to do a few events rather than too many events because that could be quite overwhelming and then just to really do the marketing well for 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 those ones that are special to the designer. Have you found any techniques that help you connect to your audience a little bit better? Is there a way that you, you know, speak to your customers and get some of the feedback that they give you and repurpose that in your marketing? Gosh, that's a good question, actually. I think that maybe it would be good for me to ask more pertinent questions to, to find out what works for my customer. So I've not really looked into that in such great detail to to see what works for them. Um, but that's a really interesting question. Some of the guests that we've had on the show have had good luck to mirror the feedback that they get in their marketing, mirroring that sentiment. So it almost sounds like a testimonial. And they found that it speaks to that audience very well. So I was just curious if you've sure. used any of that. Um, but you did mention some work in magazines and I wanted to dive into that a little bit because they seem to be really expensive on the front end because you need to buy advertising space in several issues and the ad space tends to be expensive. Um, have you had a different experience yeah. with that or do you have any tips that you could share with that? Sure. I, I never actually do any advertising through magazines and what I aim to do is to gain editorial exposure through online and through printed media. So I contact the, the magazines and send them a press release and I hope that on occasion they will be interested and they will take the information further and, and use the press releases and images in the magazines. And over the last year, 2016, I found that going down that route has been quite successful. So I think I will continue in that way rather than taking on the expense of advertising, which perhaps in the future will be a very good idea. However, at the moment, I prefer to, to do the, the PR and to gain uh, press through that route bit more organically. No, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. There's just not enough budget to support some of the advertising in some of these magazines. It's interesting that the magazines are able to run with your press release. 
in my experience, they've gotten a bit pickier in the content that they'd like. And I guess it depends on the industry. Um, but some of the magazines that I've pitched, they almost want to see full written articles before they're willing to uh, air anything. So it's good that you're getting some success with press releases. Yeah, it, it depends. It, I think the press release needs to tie in with what the magazine is looking for. And if the press release is relevant, the magazines may be interested. However, if the jewellery images that I send are not relevant, then they may wait for a, a different collection or a different item of jewellery. It, it depends whether it fits in also with their philosophy as well. So if I send my jewellery to an ethical magazine, they may have some interest. Um, so it depends on the market that I'm sending the images to. As we've talked this last hour, I've realized that you know it takes a lot of different skills to be successful in what you do. And I'm wondering if you think that you have some unique skill set or superpower that has led you to this point. Like if you think that you do something particularly better than other people that's helped you be successful. Um, well, I don't think I have any superpowers. <laughs> I think that I have great determination and the will to want to be successful and I think that that pushes me forward even though there are some times when maybe I don't feel so motivated that's just a passing phase and the motivation always comes back and then I just want to drive the business forward so I would say that that is the force that is kind to me as a person that I will not give up and that I will just continue until I reach the level of business that I that I want. Is there something that you think of when you get yourself out of bed in the morning, especially when it's really cold outside, like right now in the winter, that you think, you know what, I don't want to get out of bed, but I really want to tackle this problem? Yeah, well, thankfully, being self-employed means that... Um, you know, um, my time is very, very flexible. So, um, say I have a late start, I will finish late. So I can always make up the hours, even, you know, say it's cold and just need a bit of rest. I, I will definitely put the hours in and, and work late maybe. So, yep. yep. Thankfully, the time is flexible, so can, I can fit in the hours. Benefits of being your own boss, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Is there something that you feel that uh, can't be really replicated easily about what you do? And, you know, off the bat, it sounds like you do some really specific custom work, uh, especially when it comes to using non-conflict materials. So, and it sounds like that niche is something that's pretty narrow, but that you would still have some competition. Do you think that there's still something that you do uniquely that other people aren't doing that gives you that edge? Um, yes, you're right. The green approach to a business, the ethical approach and the fair trade stance is growing in popularity, which is fantastic, actually. And hopefully... It's something that won't be questioned within the industry. It will just be the norm and that something that people just do. 
Um, so yes, that wouldn't necessarily be a unique selling point in the industry that I'm in. I think that designers are all individuals and we have our own unique outlook on life and the way that we see the world and the way that we look at things. And I think that when designers pick up their ideas and develop the designs, hopefully this is an area where they all have their own unique qualities in the designs that are produced and that are created. And I think that this gives the designers their unique selling point from others because we've got our own view of how we make, how we design and how we create. Definitely have your own perspective on how you see the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. How can people find your designs and buy your jewelry? Um, people can look up my website, which is uk. My work can also be seen on a big website called Not on the High Street, and it's sold through select boutiques and shops in the United Kingdom as well. Perfect, and we'll definitely link to all of that in our show notes. So, Farah, thanks again for coming on the show and being so transparent about your business and the work that you do. And thanks again for sharing all those details with us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Here are three of my takeaways that we can apply to our businesses. Number one, find your core motivation. Farah is really inspired by designs found in nature and really wants to make a difference in the jewelry industry by using materials from ethical sources. This pushes her forward when she hits the inevitable roadblock. For more on finding this core motivation, see the Product Startup episode 34. Number two, host pop-up shops and events. Validating your product and audience is critical. One of the best ways of doing this is meeting people directly and getting their feedback. Getting this data is especially important before you launch a brand when honing your marketing. Number three, let your individuality show through your product. Farrah is not concerned about all the competitors in her space. She doesn't have any patented technology, but the sum of her values, ideas, and experiences is incorporated in her products. She continues to create these new lines and differentiate from the rest of the market. If you've got any questions or comments, I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash 38. Join me next week as I speak with Tim Pennell. He's developed an award-winning machine called the Reefinator, which he manufactures and sells to farmers and contractors across Australia. The Reefinator converts shallow rocky soil into deep productive soils for an economical cost, and we dive into the details of creating industrial machinery. So tune in next week to hear that episode. I've also set up a phone number for you to call and leave a question or feedback about the show, and you can also pitch your product startup to the show audience. So leave me a message at 681 321 1115. If you're going to pitch the product startup audience about your product based business, please keep your pitch to 30 seconds or about the time that you'd have to talk to someone in an elevator. Don't forget to include the problem you're solving and the call to action, what you need us, the listeners, to do for you. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you next week.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.